Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, Labayomi Azikwe, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is Sunday, uh, March 6, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again uh, to another edition of our program. Later on, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. And uh, we'll have dispatches on the sharp questions uh, asked by African journalists to uh, the United States State Department on why the continent should support Washington's position on the Ukraine war. Russia says it is prepared to end its special military operations in Ukraine if certain conditions are met. Niger and West Africa say that five of its troops were killed in a jihadist attack earlier today. And Kenyan uh, Deputy President William Ruto has just returned from an international tour as he prepares to run uh, for uh, the East African state's top office. In the second hour, we further explore the position of African states in the Ukraine crisis. Later, we focus on our commemoration of Women's History Month with an examination of revolutionary activist Lucy Parsons uh, during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, Finally, we look back uh, with a discussion on the role of women during the 1960s, uh, African-American liberation struggle. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Uh, Stay tuned. We'll take a musical interlude uh, with the orchestra, Kiam Vib, And we'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Oh, yeah. 
Journal <clears throat> Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast, and uh, that was uh, the music of Orchestra Kiam Viv, uh, music from uh, 1974 <clears throat> uh, from uh, the Democratic uh, Republic of <clears throat> Congo. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. And our lead story uh, deals uh, with the current situation uh, in Ukraine. And, of course, uh, deals uh, with the response of uh, African states, as well as African journalists, uh, to uh, the United States pressure for a denunciation uh, of the Russian Federation. Now, according to an article that was published in uh, AllAfrica.com by Andre Van Wyk, it says that a webinar hosted by the U.S. Department of State was held to discuss ongoing Russian aggression in Ukraine in the context of its impact on the nations of the African continent and an appeal uh, to African journalists in a subsequent question-and-answer period. Assistant Secretary of State uh, for African Affairs, Molly Fee, was introduced shortly after the briefing started to make opening remarks. She said that uh, the United States believes strongly that African voices matter in the international community, that your voices matter in the global conversation, uh, she also said that we believe that it is crucial at this moment in time that the entire international community demonstrates unity and speaks with one voice against this aggression and in support of principles, timeless principles. These include sovereignty, territorial integrity, peaceful resolution of disputes, and protection of civilians. <clears throat> of course, uh, this uh, brought about... <clears throat> Uh, questions uh, from uh, African journalists. Uh, there was also some discussion about the difficulties uh, faced by African students in Ukraine uh, who were subjected to uh, discrimination as they were attempting to leave the country in uh, light of the fighting uh, that was going on. <clears throat> and uh, the foreign minister uh, has made clear, according to uh, Molly C., that all individuals caught up in the chaos of this war must receive equal treatment. Well, that's not what happened, and it was clearly seen uh, over uh, the last uh, several days. <clears throat> and, of course, um, one journalist uh, from Madagascar, Gary uh, Ranavoson of Las Press uh, from Madagascar, said, why require African states, including Madagascar, to condemn Russia's actions? Isn't this going against a state sovereign right and self-determination? This is not our war, uh, the journalist said. 
He uh, responded by saying, first of all, we're not requiring anyone to do anything, but we believe it is in the interest of all states to join the entire international community rejecting uh, this aggression. And other um, uh, journalists, uh, for example, Catherine Bayruhanga of the BBC in Kenya asked, what are the possible consequences for African countries that maintain close military and economic ties to Russia, like Mali and the Central African Republic, following uh, the conflict? Are there consequences for countries that maintain such relationships with Russia? And, of course, uh, the uh, U.S. Secretary of uh, State, uh, Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, had to respond to that question as well in a disingenuous uh, manner. Also, uh, Ejidi Hari Ramana of the Awaku Press Group out of Burundi uh, asked, is the U.S. ready to send troops uh, in Ukraine in case Russia keeps killing civilians across Ukraine? If no, to what extent do you think Putin can be affected by economic sanctions? <clears throat> then, of course, there was a question uh, from Eric Naki from the Citizen newspaper of South Africa saying, what is your view regarding South Africa's abstention at the United Nations General Assembly regarding the Russian vote? And, uh, of course, uh, Ephraim Swift uh, Kerrigan of Gabuz FM in Botswana said, I wanted to ask, uh, what is the position of the U.S. on censoring of social media and the complete wipeout of the other party? In this case, obviously, Russia, since free speech and free press is a cornerstone not only of democracy, but a tool that can create a counterculture and counter-narratives. And, of course, uh, Fee, uh, the Assistant uh, Secretary of State for African Affairs said that, thanks for raising that question, that is a tension that we're all grappling with. But I believe it is very clear to African audiences, as it is to us here in the United States, that Russian conduct in the social media space is not free and fair. And then Simon Ataba of uh, Today News Africa asked, you just mentioned reporting about Africans facing racism in Ukraine and Poland, uh, being denied entry into trains in Kiev, and being turned back at the border with Poland. Is there any reason why the State Department has not publicly condemned racism against Africans in Ukraine and Poland? And how do you counter the argument that it's not in the interest of Ukraine to be a part of NATO, just like it's not in the interest of the U.S. to allow North Korea or Iran to have nuclear weapons. So these are some of the questions that were asked uh, in this uh, webinar, and uh, you can read uh, this report in its entirety uh, over the Pan-African Newswire. We'll give you information on how you can log on to the Pan-African Newswire later on uh, at the end of this segment. Other news uh, from uh, Ukraine involving the Russian President Vladimir Putin, who said that Russia's military operation in Ukraine can be suspended only if Kiev ceases military actions and fulfills Moscow's demands. He said this in a phone conversation with his Turkish counterpart, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Uh, the Kremlin press service reported following the talks of the two leaders on Sunday. Vladimir Putin informed about the progress of the special military operation on protecting Donbass conveyed principal approaches and assessments in this context, explained in detail uh, basic sets, uh, goals, and tasks. It was emphasized that the special operation is proceeding accordingly to a plan and is on schedule. 
It was noted that Russia's armed forces were doing everything possible to preserve the lives and guarantee the security of civilians. Precision strikes are targeting exclusively the facilities of the military infrastructure. Against this background, the actions of nationalist neo-Nazi formations that continue the intensive shelling of Donbass and use civilians, including foreigners, practically taken hostage as human shields in Ukrainian cities and localities are particularly cruel and cynical, uh, the Russian government statement said. It said during the conversation, the Russian leader confirmed uh, the readiness uh, for dialogue with Ukraine authorities and foreign partners in order to settle the conflict. That said, the futility was noted of any attempts to stall the negotiation process by the Ukrainian army to regroup its forces and means. In relation to that, it was stressed that the suspension of the special operation is possible only if Kyiv ceases the military actions and fulfill Russia's demands that were made perfectly clear. Uh, a hope was expressed that during another planned round of the talks, Ukraine representatives will display a more constructive approach that fully takes into account the current circumstances, and that is according uh, to uh, the statement by the Russian government. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In the West African state of Niger, five soldiers have been killed by a mine in Niger's southwestern Tarodi region, where jihadist attacks using improvised explosive devices, IEDs, are increasingly frequent, uh, with uh, the defense ministry uh, said earlier today. Three soldiers were wounded in the blast, uh, which occurred on Friday when an Army patrol vehicle ran over an improvised explosive device, the IED. The ministry said in a statement carried on national television, the troops were part of the 2,160-strong NIA anti-jihadist force set up in February in the southwest of Niger, near the border with Burkina Faso. Since 2017, western Niger has been regularly targeted by Islamist groups uh, despite the deployment of thousands of anti-jihadist troops and the imposition of a state of emergency. IED attacks on the army have become particularly frequent in Tarodi and neighboring Guthay. Both are located in the flashpoint three-border zone between Niger, Burkina Faso, and Mali, where jihadist groups, including the Islamic State and the Greater Sahara, operate. Security sources say the jihadists have recruited many young people in Niger, particularly in areas along the border with Burkina Faso, where they have set up several logistical bases. Niger, which uh, is considered the world's poorest country, according to the United Nations Human Development Index, is battling another jihadist insurgency on the southeastern border with Nigeria, where Boko Haram and the Islamic State of West Africa province operate. President Mohamed Bazoum uh, says that 12,000 of the country's soldiers are involved full-time in anti-jihadist operations. And uh, finally, uh, in regard uh, to developments uh, in the East African state of Kenya, Deputy President William Ruto uh, has completed his leg of the tour in the United States of America and is now set to tour London in the United Kingdom. Ruto wound uh, up his U.S. tour after meeting with Kenyans living in the diaspora. USA leg, big success. Thank you, Americans. Now on to London, tweeted Ababu Namwabi, Ruto's presidential campaign international relations advisor. In London, Ruto is expected to meet senior U.K. government officials 
He is also uh, expected to visit the National Counterterrorism Center and speak at both the Commonwealth Secretariat and the Royal Institute of International Affairs at Chatham House. He will also engage the Kenyan diaspora in the UK and pay a courtesy call on the Archbishop of Canterbury, His Grace Justin Welby. Ruto left uh, the country on the 27th of February uh, this year for a 12-day tour of the United States and the United Kingdom, where he will also meet Kenyans in the diaspora. In his USA tour, Ruto has revealed plans are underway to rig the August polls. He gave details of, on the frosty relationship between him and uh, President Uhuru Kenyatta, as well as the impediments of delivery of the Big Four agenda. Ruto uh, singled out blackmail, threats, intimidation as some of the biggest obstacles to democratic elections as Kenya braces for the August 9th general elections. Ruto was speaking in Maryland during his tour of the United States. He said that Kenyans want to make the choice of their preferred leaders without being intimidated by anyone, including the state machinery who have been on the spot lately for target some politicians ahead of the polls. The United Democratic Alliance Party leader pointed out that the major issue on the ballot in the upcoming polls is the democracy of the country and whether voters are granted a chance to make their own choices devoid of blackmail, threats, and intimidation. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In closing, uh, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, some 24 years ago, and has since then published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, uh, magazines, uh, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on uh, to uh, the Pan-African Newswire, uh, you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and uh, burning issues of the day. All you need to do is go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, March 6, uh, 2022, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the voice of Candy Staten living inside of me. And uh, right now we want to move into a uh, further analysis uh, of the situation in Ukraine vis-a-vis African countries. Uh, 17 uh, African countries abstain uh, from uh, the United Nations General Assembly uh, vote to condemn Russia uh, for the special military operations in Ukraine. This occurred uh, just this last past week. And uh, there was a uh, news segment over the South African Broadcasting Corporation uh, where they interviewed uh, the former South African ambassador to the state of Eritrea in the Horn of Africa. Eritrea uh, was the only country on the African continent that uh, resoundingly voted no uh, against uh, the resolution condemning. Uh, Let's listen uh, to this uh, report uh, on uh, Africa and uh, the Ukraine crisis. Russia may be shunned by many around the globe for its invasion of Ukraine, but it has found friends in Africa. Russia has been long tied to the continent, stretching back to the Cold War and at times helping many liberation struggles gain independence from colonial rule. At the United Nations on Wednesday, South Africa was among 24 African countries that declined to join the resounding vote denouncing Russian aggression. 16 African countries abstained, 7 didn't even vote at all, and one, Eritrea, voted against it, keeping company with only Russia, Belarus, Syria and North Korea. Well, to talk a little bit more about this, we're now joined by South Africa's former ambassador to Eritrea, Ambassador Professor Iqbal Jazbai. Thanks very much indeed for joining us, and uh, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you, Peter. It's good to be back. All right. So before we get into, you know, the, the countries, Eritrea in particular, uh, just give me a, a general sense. I suppose um, when it comes to Russia, Africa is always going to be divided depending on the history. Indeed, um, most countries will vote according to to their very own national as well as geopolitical interests. Uh, As you mentioned, um, many countries on the continent at the moment have very strong military as well as uh, economic ties with Russia. So you see in the context of the vote which uh, Eritrea chose to undertake, it took into account its own geopolitical interests as well as its historic national interests in making that particular uh, discussion, Peter. All right. Well, let's talk then about uh, Eritrea. most African countries choose, chose to abstain. And I guess what it says uh, when you abstain is uh, we're not going to vote against you, but we can't go all out and endorse your invasion. I suppose that that's how we, we translate it. Is, is that a correct assumption? Yes, it is a correct exum- uh, assumption. And it comes back to the point as to what is the state of bilateral relations mm-hmm between that particular state, its foreign policy, and its particular immediate interest. For example, in the case of Eritrea, the historic relationship between Russia and Eritrea has not been a very 
healthy one. Uh, we recall that Eritrea fought, according to many scholars, the longest anti-colonial battles. First, there were the Italians there for some 52 years. Then came the British for some 11 years. And then started this war against a own continental labor, uh, neighbor, sorry, uh, and that's in the, in the form of its second most populated country in Africa, where the Eritreans had to fight the Ethiopian states at that point under Haile Selassie and uh, the government of Mengistu. So during that context, the Russians in the Cold War era were supplying arms to the then Ethiopian government. So um, the, 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 the historic relationship has not been very good, but more recently, since particularly 2011 onwards, uh, when the Eritrean government and its policymakers undertook an assessment, they came to the conclusion that it's better to now work with the Russians uh, more closely, given this particular history, so um, they, they, they've exchanged ambassadors, they've started a few economic projects, and also the fact that historically the Eritrean military had Russian aircraft, and many of those Russian aircraft, given the Ukrainian air technicians are very familiar with it, were brought to Eritrea to um, uh, service those MiG aircraft, and, 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 and that gives us some sense of the political complexity in the past. But currently, the U.S. has decided to unilaterally impose economic sanctions on Eritrea. So when the Eritrean policymakers had to assess the balance of political, military, and regional geopolitical a balance of forces, they opted to vote against the U.S. and in favor of Russia because they believe that will secure their interests and it will be more in line with the AU and according to the Eritrean government and the non-aligned movement principles of not having single country resolutions against any country, the principle of avoiding double standards in human rights, and, and so forth. So those are some of the broad framing of the Eritrean response to exactly why they voted um, on this resolution, um, against the resolution, and in favor of Russia. It, it is interesting because to vote no um, is, is quite a definite statement. It goes beyond abstaining. Um, Eritrea, uh, as you uh, help me uh, understand, is that uh, it's been described as the Cuba of Africa. Cuba itself, also under U.S. sanctions, could not bring itself to vote no. They too abstained, but one knows the relationship that it has with Russia. So Eritrea went a, a step further. So was this a vote for Russia? Uh, or a vote against the U.S., or a bit of both? I would see it uh, on two fronts. Um, the Cubans are very close to the U.S., 
um, just a few kilometers away from Cuba, and there are uh, a number of complexities, including the fact that the U.S. in the uh, state of Florida, the city of Miami, hosts a huge Cuban diaspora population. And whereas in the case of Eritrea, it has had a long history with the U.S. in the sense that when it formally got independence after the referendum in 1993, they had very healthy relations with the U.S. Uh, in fact, the then U.S. ambassador had direct access to the Eritrean president, Isaias of Warki. But the relationship started taking a, a, a huge nosedive when the U.S. was a signatory for the Ethiopia-Eritrea border uh, well-known Algiers peace agreement, which South Africa as well is a signatory to that agreement. The U.S. took this um, uh, uh, decision not to implement the Algiers peace agreement. So from then on, the Eritrean government decided not to accredit a appointed U.S. ambassador to uh, Eritrea, but to keep the relationships at the level of charge d'affaires. During the time of Obama, there were a number of national security advisors uh, which favored closer relationship with Ethiopia at that point because they viewed Ethiopia as a strategic partner on what was then known as the war on terror. And um, so then the relationship with the U.S. soured further. During the Trump period, interestingly, there was some reconnecting of diplomatic relationships. Trump's State Department received the foreign minister of Eritrea. But once again, when the Democratic Party came back into power, the same national security advisors who were in office during the Obama period started implementing the same approach they had implemented during the Obama period. So my sense is that Cuba had to assess the, it's a very close call for them to vote in favor of Russia. So they chose to abstain, like South Africa. And um, Eritrea felt that uh, it could send a very clear message to the U.S. that it doesn't agree with these unilateral uh, U.S. Um, treasury and trade sanctions once again on both Eritrea and Ethiopia. So I think those are some of the factors which um, have to be considered as to why Cuba and Eritrea took two very different positions in spite of the fact that they have very cordial and warm relations with Russia. All right, so in the past, uh, since the Cold War, um, Russia worked very hard um, to get allies on the continent. It seems that in recent years, uh, Russia is working hard to um, increase the closeness of those relationships. We had the Russia-Africa Summit, I think 2019, and uh, one scheduled for later this year. Again, bringing um, uh, African countries closer. What do you think this is? Is this about, again, a, a different type of Cold War with America? 
or is this economic now? And Eritrea probably now is in the front row given what they've done at UNGA. My sense is that uh, the Eritrean leaders and their foreign policy specialists, when they did a mapping of what would best serve their national goals, namely to preserve their self-determination, their independence at its, as a country, and also to nurture this Ethiopia-Eritrea peace agreement, we, we recall these U.S. Uh, Treasury unilateral sanctions have been imposed both on Eritrea and Ethiopia. And it took a long while that both leaders of Ethiopia and Eritrea took a decision that to preserve this peace agreement, which was signed in 2018, and to take a number of steps to nurture that peace agreement. So they both felt, um, although uh, Ethiopia took a, a different uh, road in voting uh, at UNGA, uh, at the UN General Assembly, uh, but the Eritreans have always, like Cuba and many other states, remained very principled in its foreign policy. Not only there did it vote against um, uh, the U.S. and favor a decision more in favor with Russia, at the last uh, human, uh, the UN Human Rights Council, it also voted against a U.S. push to undertake an in, uh, investigation into the Russian role uh, in the Ukraine. And mm -hmm. there, too, it took the position to vote against that resolution on the basis they would argue that the U.S. did not push, push for a uh, U.N. Uh, Human Rights Council resolution to investigate the U.S. role in Libya, the U.S. role in uh, uh, in Iraq, or the U.S. role in Afghanistan or Syria. So that's the sense I'm getting as to mm. why they particularly move in this direction. And clearly, yes, uh, there's an affirmative answer to your question that um, the um, uh, most African states have military agreements with Russia. And uh, as you correctly mentioned, the uh, aspects of um, uh, Russian companies getting involved in, on the continent, as well as military bases, including in the Horn of Africa, is being um, explored and being established more strongly now than ever before. All right, let's talk a little bit about Eritrea itself. As somebody who spent quite a number of years there as uh, South Africa's ambassador, um, you were, South Africa was a signatory to the 2000 uh, Border Algiers Peace Agreement between Ethiopia and Eritrea, and uh, also the development of uh, the 2018 Asmara Peace Agreement between Ethiopia and Eritrea. And uh, uh, in and amongst all of this, we saw the Prime Minister of Ethiopia get a Nobel Peace Prize. I just wonder um, what that has meant for Eritrea in terms of peace, because now we have stories of Eritrea being involved in places such as Tigray. Yes, um, uh, Peter, it's a uh, pertinent question. Uh, the region 
has sadly suffered from what we would call a huge amount of external meddling or what one analyst more recently referred to, uh, a huge amount of geopolitical traffic, meaning the presence of external players. Like you correctly po pointed out, you had the Cold War era where the, the then Soviet Union had bases there, then the Americans took over, and more recently they've um, taken this, um, I believe, unfavorable position of not allowing the regional leaders for themselves to come up with homegrown agreements, but to develop their own framing of the problems there, both in Ethiopia and the backlog of political nation building, of economic development from their very own angle, which has not favored U.S. interests. So what that has really done, it has given the entire Horn of Africa to China uh, on a plate. So China is heavily involved in Ethiopia with a huge number of development projects, economic projects, and the same applies in Eritrea alongside with South Africa, uh, the mining companies in gold, copper, zinc, and potash. The Tigray issue is simply an issue where the Tigray People's Liberation Front could not deal with the fact that as the minority party of no more than 10% of the population, that it had lost power now to a new Prime Minister, uh, Prime Minister Abe, and that it had to come to terms with that. Instead, the TPLF uh, uh, sullied a lot and was sulky about it, and it decided to attack its largest Ethiopian military base in its own region. And that led to the unfolding of a war situation in Tigray. And this is when then the Eritreans, uh, the political leaders, as well as the key political leaders in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, including Prime Minister Abe, had a common purpose. That is to uh, defeat the TPLF and to get them to come to the table to discuss, to dialogue issues. And fortunately now, Ethiopia passed the National Reconciliation Vote, and last week, Saturday, much of the reconciliation group, uh, processes have started with the many um, political uh, deficits and problems which Ethiopia faces as one of the second most populated country. And many of those political unresolved deficit issues have to now be uh, resolved uh, at the earliest. And I'm glad that many of the neighboring countries like uh, South Sudan, Kenya, uh, as well as Eritrea as the new peace partner in the region, as well as Uganda, are giving it the requisite support to see that the peace agreement signed between Ethiopia and Eritrea succeeds. It's a seminal peace agreement and homegrown agreement. The other big players just came into the picture for a good congratulatory uh, photo shoot.
All right. Professor Ambassador uh, Iqbal uh, Jazbai, thank you so much indeed for joining us. Uh, I look forward to chatting to you again, particularly with the uh, uh, good knowledge you have of that region. Thanks for your time tonight. It's a pleasure, uh, Peter. Welcome back. And uh, that was an interview uh, with the South African former ambassador to Eritrea, uh, discussing uh, the positions of various African states vis-a-vis the Ukraine conflict. Of course, uh, many of the African states um, abstained or did not vote at all on the uh, United Nations uh, General Assembly resolution condemning Russia uh, for its special military operation in Ukraine, and um, the ambassador went over uh, some of the reasons uh, behind uh, the failure of uh, even those who have uh, voted, uh, who did vote in favor of the resolution uh, to go all out in condemnation of uh, the Russian Federation. And of course, there are economic ties uh, with various African states. And of course, as we mentioned earlier, uh, during the Pan-African Newswire segment, uh, the webinar in which uh, Molly Fee, uh, the Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs of the U.S., uh, was uh, asked some very sharp questions in regard to why uh, should Africa take the same position as the U.S. and uh, why uh, is the U.S. pressuring countries in Africa and other institutions on the continent to support this position uh, in regard uh, to Russia vis-a-vis uh, Ukraine. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program. Come on, man. 
No Time to Lose. Uh, that is Memphis's own uh, Carla Thomas. And, of course, uh, today, uh, March 6th, uh, represents the 65th anniversary of the independence of the Gold Coast, uh, which became uh, Ghana. Uh, 1957, uh, the Convention People's Party, under the leadership of Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, led the country uh, to national independence on March 6th of 1957. Uh, in many uh, instances, uh, when the Ghana independence is celebrated uh, annually, um, the voice of Dr. Kwame Nkrumah is heard uh, at the independence celebration on March 6th of 1957. Uh, in Accra, but uh, in this program, uh, we're going to uh, move uh, a couple of years ahead to December of 1958 uh, during a visit uh, by the then Prime Minister of Ghana, uh, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, to the United States. Uh, Purportedly, it was during this meeting uh, that uh, the president, the Prime Minister and later president, uh, made an appeal uh, to then President Dwight Eisenhower uh, to, of course, uh, support uh, the development of the Akasambo Dam Project, the Volta Dam Project, uh, which was realized uh, in February of 1966, just three weeks uh, prior to the CIA and State Department-backed uh, coup d'etat against uh, Dr. Nkrumah on February 24th of 1966. This is uh, Dr. Nkrumah being interviewed uh, over Meet the Press, a uh, weekly uh, television and radio program uh, in the United States. And, of course, he has asked a number of questions about uh, the allegiances and alliances uh, of Ghana uh, during that time period, heavily related uh, to the whole question of non-alignment and, of course, uh, the specter of socialism and national liberation, which was sweeping the world in 1958. Let's listen uh, to this interview uh, with uh, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah from December 28th of 1958 in the United States over uh, the program Meet the Press. Brings you Meet the Press, the prize-winning interview program produced by Lawrence E. Spivak. Four of America's top news reporters are ready for this unrehearsed news conference. Here's the moderator of Meet the Press, Lawrence Spivak. Welcome once again to Meet the Press. Our guest today is Dr. Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana, the newest independent African state. Dr. Nkrumah has come to this country at the invitation of President Eisenhower. Dr. Nkrumah was born in Ghana, but received much of his adult education in the United States. For 10 years, he was at Lincoln University and the University of Pennsylvania, first as a student and then as a teacher. In 1947, he returned to the Gold Coast of Africa, where he rapidly assumed leadership in the fight for his country's independence. On March 6, 1957, Ghana became an independent nation, a member of the British Commonwealth, and Dr. Nkrumah was chosen Ghana's first prime minister. The birth of Ghana as a nation has been called a personal triumph for Dr. Nkrumah and a symbol for other African states seeking freedom. Earlier this year, he initiated and was made chairman of the Conference of Independent African States. And now seated around the press table, ready to interview our guests, are Patrick O'Donovan, 
of the London Observer, May Craig of the Portland, Maine Press Herald, Clifton Daniel of the New York Times, and Richard Clerman of Time Life. And now, Dr. Nkrumah, if you're ready, we'll start the questions with Mr. Clerman. Prime Minister, in your trip to the United States and Canada, you have repeatedly said that the foreign policy of your government is basically one of non-alignment and positive neutrality. I wonder if you could tell us exactly what you mean by that. Uh, when I refer to this position as that of non-alignment and positive neutralism, all what we mean is that uh, we have to watch out how we align ourselves with any particular group. But that does not mean uh, a sort of negative neutralism, or rather the suspension of any judgment. If any position were to arise, I think we can take the view which we think is the right view to take. Well, we frequently have situations in the world now where the East and West, uh, in some cases, uh, the Russians and the Americans are on opposite sides of an issue. Uh, could you say, in terms of this foreign policy that you've just described, uh, where, in such a situation, your government would uh, place its um, loyalties? Yes, where we think our interests lie. Well, let me be a little more specific. Yeah. We have a situation that is very much in the news now in Lebanon. Uh, where does your interest, interest lie in Lebanon? At the moment, I think that's why our non-alignment comes in. In the case of Lebanon, it's really non-alignment. We don't want to uh, get into the what is now happening there. And I think I've given out my own view on the matter. Mr. Daniel. Uh, Mr. Prime Minister, uh, let's turn a moment from your foreign policy to ours in the United States. We've talked about the Lebanon. Uh, you may be uniquely equipped to give us some advice on this subject and others. You were educated in the United States. Your country belongs to the British Commonwealth. And uh, you are certainly one of the outstanding leaders of African nationalism. Perhaps you can give us some advice about our approach to these emerging new countries in Africa and Asia. Uh, specifically, back to the Lebanon, would you uh, say that we were right, uh, from our point of view, to have sent our troops to the Lebanon? I would not be in a position to say whether you are right or wrong. But as I have pointed out elsewhere, there's no need to apportion blame anywhere. The only thing is for us to try to find out a solution to the problem. Well, having, having sent our troops there, uh, what uh, solution would you now suggest? Should we withdraw them? Should we, should we remain with our troops for a I time? I would say that uh, you can withdraw them when, say, you have the United Nations forced to replace it. Well, let's turn then to another country in the area. Uh, what would you say uh, should be our attitude toward the new uh, revolutionary regime in Iraq? Should we recognize it? Uh, should we establish relations with it? Of course, I'm not very well acquainted with actually the real causes of that coup d'etat. 
And therefore, perhaps it would be difficult for me to give a judgment here. Well, let me ask you then about uh, 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 something I'm sure you do know something about, and that is what uh, do you think should be our attitude towards our relations with uh, President uh, Nasser of Egypt, a man whom I believe you know and uh, know very well? Well, I think uh, the relationship could be that of friendship. Uh, I remember discussing this very question with him. He pointed out that at a time when he needed help, he didn't get it. You see, and in order to survive, he has to go somewhere else. And that's why you took that uh, step you took. I don't think there is a really big enmity uh, between the United States and the United Arab Republic. Mrs. Craig. Uh, Mr. Prime Minister, would you join the United Arab Republic? No, because uh, I belong to one of the African states. Yes. Well, you did call a conference of independent African states. Would you call that uh, forming a bloc? No, I won't call that permanent block. We were, uh, we were particular, very particular about this. We wanted to concentrate on the independent states on the African continent as such. So Egypt was on the African continent. That's why Egypt was invited as an independent country of the continent to attend this conference. You speak quite often of Libya, Tunisia, Morocco, would you, would you like to form them, them into a block of which you would be the head? You were very particular at the conference not to use this word block because all what we are trying to achieve is some sort of a united outlook to solve our common problems. As I made it quite clear, we are not ganging up against anybody. Well, sir, what do you call that? If you don't call it a block, what name do you call it when you get together with the common aims and a kind of an alliance? Perhaps you might call it the African personality, which we think has now emerged. Well, don't you think That's it's the same thing? That's mutual cooperation. Don't you think it's the same thing when friends get together to defend each other? No, we didn't say we are going to get together to defend each other, either by military arms or anything like that. We want to get together so that we shall be able to discuss our common problems. There is your British Commonwealth, and I think there is also your an American Union. You are friendly with Israel. Would you, what would you do if your friend, uh, Mr. Nasser, were to go on with what he says he will do, which is to destroy Israel and push it into the sea? I don't think I've ever noted that from Nasser saying that was going to destroy Israel. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. He's never come to my notice. Yes, sir. I've heard him say it. Then it's going to be a job. That's all. Well, what would you do, said Idle, and let it be done, your friend Israel? Is it not let you it... said Idle and let that be done, your friend Israel. But that's, I don't think you... that will be done. Mr. O'Donovan. Sir, if I could turn perhaps to the internal affairs of your country. Uh, I read quite a lot lately, particularly in the British press, uh, about some rather turbulent political affairs that are going on in Ghana. And I wondered if perhaps you sometimes thought that the British, in leaving, 
had saddled you with an unsuitable parliamentary system? I won't say that they have they left us and saddled us in a sort of a bad parliamentary system. But all depends upon the constitution that is left with you. But can you make it work? I mean, would you say, for instance, that uh, democracy as an institution is perfectly safe in Ghana today? I would definitely say that democracy in Ghana is perfectly safe. But sometimes, you know, you have to take some measures to really safeguard democracy in its initial stages. Uh, Mr. Prime Minister, can you find any use for the more traditional modes of government in Africa? For instance, you have a, a quite a large system of chieftains in your country. Do you find those now getting in the way of the proper development of a modern Ghana? No. At the moment, uh, most of our chiefs are becoming to realize that the times are changing, and they must also change with the times. Would it be quite possible in the next election, I mean, would it be theoretically possible in the next election for you to be defeated and the opposition to take over in a quite orderly manner? It's possible. Mr. Prime Minister, is it true, as has been said, that although you've given Ghana considerable stability, uh, Ghana has lost some freedom under you? That charge has been made, as you know, in this country. I wouldn't say that under me. I think Ghana has got more freedom. And any time I ask this question, I always say that I wish some of the press from here could go there and study our problems locally. Naturally, we were faced with some definite problems at the beginning, and we had to take some certain steps. Well, is it true at all that you tend to get rid of your opponents when you don't like their criticism, as also has been charged in Time Life, for example, in this country? That is not true. It isn't. No. Mr. Clarman. Mr. Prime Minister, uh, Mr. Spivak has been talking to you about civil liberties inside your country. Uh, do you have a, a law called a, prevent, uh, a uh, pre preventative detention law? And am I right in understanding that that is a law by which you may imprison a man up to five years for a threat to national security or a threat to foreign policy without any step-by-step -step judicial process? Yes, I think... Uh I was responsible in introducing that bill myself. Well, now, in Western terms, that would be considered a peculiar law for a democracy to have on its books. I wonder if you could explain that to us. You see, we've got to a point <clears throat> that you have to adopt certain temporary measures. You see, we have an independent judiciary. We have uh, an independent civil service. Uh, when the British, you know, left, uh, they left, shall I put it this way, that they had the power by which, the real authority by which, with which they governed Ghana. They left, and then they did not put it anywhere else. And so everybody started feeling as if that anybody can do whatever he likes. And so we have to find out measures by adopting some temporary measures by which we can really put this thing to stop until everything goes well for us to be able to follow the right line.
May I uh, change the subject yeah. to a larger legislative question? Uh, are you in favor of the proposed summit meeting that is about to uh, apparently about to take place in New York? Yes, I'm all in favor for the summit conference because all this argument here and there is sort of when they meet around the common round table, then they will actually know who is fooling each other. What do you hope will emerge from this conference? I mean, when they meet. Uh, after they meet, when they've met, and then what do you hope will emerge from their meeting? Well, if nothing emerges, at least they have met. And I think since I came, I've been having all along certain proposals which I've put forward and which I hope the United Nations will take it very seriously. <clears throat> Mr. Daniel. Uh, Prime Minister, I'd like to return just one moment to the question of the internal affairs of Ghana. Uh, to ask about another development there, your country is a member of the British Commonwealth. Uh, do you envision that the country shall remain so for a long time and pursue British institutions and British uh, methods? The reason I ask the question is because uh, since the, uh, Ghana has become independent, we've seen what seem to be some signs of a breakaway from the British tradition. I believe that, um, uh, for example, uh, you no longer have God Save the Queen as the national anthem. I think the Queen's uh, pictures have been taken off the stamps in the country and uh, replaced, I believe, in some cases with your own portrait. Uh, other evidences of a tendency to drift away from Britain, shall we say. And, uh, you see, we chose according to our own free will to remain within the Commonwealth. And I personally feel that it is our mutual interest for us to remain within the Commonwealth. You see, you have had British traditions, language, and education. It will be difficult to break suddenly. But I think there are points that the African has his own personal outlook. And that's why sometimes I made a point that some sort of a Republican form of government will suit the African character. But I've gone so far as to make it quite clear that whatever form of Republican form we take, we will still continue to remain within the Commonwealth. Mrs. De Craig. Yeah, Mr. Prime Minister, your country is a very small country and probably could not defend itself militarily. I understand you put your trust in the United Nations. That's correct. Is that true? That's correct. But the United Nations has no force with which to defend you. That's why I'm advocate international force for the United Nations. You mean a police force for the United Nations? That's right. Would Ghana contribute to it? Sure, we shall contribute. You oh, don't have you have only three battalions, but I think we can put one battalion outside for the United Nations. Sir? I said, you have only three battalions, but I think you can put one battalion aside for the United Nations. Yes, but we have never been able to get the United Nations to act in time, even if it had a permanent force. How do you think we're going to get a permanent force for the United Nations? Well, we have to talk about it in the United Nations when they meet. I lead you back again to what I asked you in the first place. Yes. How can you get along without alliances of friends to help you? That's why we must all find ways and means of strengthening the United Nations. 
You have lived in the United States and were educated here. Do you think the United States is imperialist? It all depends what you mean by imperialism. But as far as I know, I don't think the United States is imperialistic. Well, imperialistic. Yeah, I don't think so. You do not think so? No. Uh, do you regard the United States as the shield of the free world? That's the way we regard ourselves. We have helped everybody. I won't say, say the United States alone. The United States and other nations fighting for freedom are the bulwark of that liberty. You want to stop nuclear testing, I have heard you say. But uh, how do you expect the free world to defend itself if it does not have the most modern of weapons which require, perhaps, testing? But the stopping of the testing should not be done by the... Uh, the worst alone. The other side also must stop testing this atomic test. Mr. Prime Minister, did I understand you to say that if the, there were a United Nations force, you would contribute troops to it? Yes. Would you prepare, be prepared to send troops into Lebanon and Jordan if United Nations force was set up? If the condition demands it, yes. Mr. O'Donovan. Uh, Mr. Prime Minister, I understand you've had a, a magnificent welcome from um, enormous number of uh, uh, American Negroes while you've been here. And I wondered if you'd seen any sign of the sort of sympathy and loyalty and a desire to help among American Negroes which American Jews have for Israel. I think that sympathy is there. That even though uh, they look upon themselves as Americans, <coughs> I think they bond of blood and kinship make them feel that perhaps they can do something to help us. And I've put it over to them that something should be done. I think not only when we ask for investment, I think Negro investment also should go to Ghana. How much, Mr. Prime Minister, does the, uh, the attitude to the race question in parts of America, uh, how much effect does that have on the African mind? For instance, how well known is the name Little Rock in Africa? Well, I think Little Rock, only those of us probably who can read, who came to our notice, the majority of the people didn't know at all what was this Little Rock. But anyway, the racial problem is there, and I think at the Accra conference, all of us came out clearly that it doesn't matter whatever it is, you should find some way in which uh, racial segregation will never exist. And it was even suggested that in our own areas, in order to show a good example, that we should bring forth legislation to abolish it in our own uh, states. Mr. Kleinman. Mr. Prime Minister, it's been said of your economic philosophy that uh, you call yourself a Marxist socialist. Is that correct, sir? Yeah. Uh, would you tell us exactly uh, what you mean when you call yourself a Marxist socialist? When I call myself Marxist socialist, I'm really talking of philosophy. But I don't know how I should really explain it better here. A man must have an outlook, a philosophical outlook. Uh, I remember discussing this matter with somebody in, I think, Washington. I don't want to mention names. We were talking about socialism and capitalism. 
He tried to explain to me that socialism in the long run will lead to dictatorship. I agreed. If you want to put it logically. Capitalism also, I pointed out, if you want to follow it to its logical conclusion, you might also be heading to uh, dictatorship of money. So in the long run, we try to find out a way that whether it's most of this has become mere words. It depends upon a man's approach to this problem and what he actually does. You must find a medium. Now, I understand one of the points of your visit here is to encourage private American capital to invest in guns. Mm -hmm. Is that right, sir? Yeah. And do you think it is any deterrent to that kind of investment, uh, the economic philosophy which you just expressed? I have never found it incompatible with private investment. In fact, we have made it quite obvious. In Ghana, we are following three principles. Certain jobs in certain industries which can be done by private capital, those also that can be done with the cooperation of private capital, and those that can be done by government. We are following these three levels very, very seriously. Gentlemen, our time is running short. Make your questions short, too. Mr. Daniel. Uh, Prime Minister, I wanted to ask whether you could specifically tell us whether, uh, in connection with your development plans, you have obtained any promises of help since you've been in this country, particularly for the Volta River hydroelectric project. No, I wouldn't say any definite uh, help, but the atmosphere is so congenial that I hope something might come out of it. Ms. Craig. Mr. Prime Minister, you said in Washington that the Middle East oil resources ought to be brought under international control with possibly the United Nations handling. And what did you mean by that? I have always felt that the oil is the troublemaker in the Middle East. And I felt that the best thing is to, in order to stop all these troubles, is to quarantine the whole of the Middle East on the basis of, say, the neutrality of Austria. But I also know that the practical applications or the, how these things should be worked out can be done by experts. And that's why I've never commended the way and means in which it should be done. Mr. Prime Minister, the Genocide uh, Convention, which makes it an international crime, destroy a race has been ratified, I believe, by 58 members of the United Nations. I don't believe uh, your nation has yet ratified it. Is there any special reason for that? I don't know much about that. That is, the United, uh, that is uh, a, a United Nations resolution, and I understand that your nation is not ratified, but would you be for ratifying such a resolution which outlaws makes an international crime to destroy a race as Hitler tried to destroy the Jews, for example. But I think uh, it condemns itself. I mean, anybody should be against a thing like that. Yes, and yet your nation has not ratified it yet. Because remember, we are only one year old. Now that some of these problems are coming before us. But you would be but personally, I'll be for it. Mr. O'Donovan. Mr. Prime Minister, when you come to uh, work practically inside the United Nations, uh, do you find yourself sympathizing most of the time with, say, the Indian delegation and working in with them in the Bandung powers? 
Because you see, we took part. Uh, the African states took part with the Bantu Conference. So naturally, in policy making on some real issues relating to Afro-Asian problems, I think we have to talk together. But what matters affecting Africa, I think, is for the eight independent states to have their own objective outlook on the matter. Well, the arrival of all these new Asian states has made an enormous difference, both for international affairs and the United Nations. Do you think that in a few years' time, with yourself and perhaps with Nigeria and others, Africa can also bring something new? That is our purpose. Mr. Kleinman. Mr. Prime Minister, you've often been called, as you undoubtedly are, the leader of African nationalism. Do you think that the African nationalism that uh, you lead will coexist happily with Colonel Nasser's Arab nationalism, or will they come in conflict? I hope they did not come in conflict. Uh, Mr. Prime Minister, Daniel. there have, in fact, uh, already been differences between yourself and Colonel Nasser in basic policy, haven't there? For example, in your relations with Israel, which was mentioned earlier, and also... Um, on this uh, question of the Lebanon, you certainly don't quite agree with uh, Colonel Nasser on the Lebanon. Is there a conflict and a rivalry there? There, have no, uh, there is no conflict. I have made the position quite clear on Israel to Nasser. And I think he understood my position. You see, we follow these things only on principles, and that's what I've been dealing with him, even though it's a Sorry to interrupt you now, but I see our time is up, Mr. Prime Minister. Thank you very much for being with us. And now, here is our announcer. Goodbye for Prime Minister Kwame Nkrumah and meet the press. Welcome back. And uh, that was a rare uh, archival audio file of uh, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah appearing on uh, Meet the Press uh, on December 28th of 1958. Uh, responding to a number of uh, questions, and of course we played that in commemoration of the 65th anniversary of the independence of Ghana, which took place on March 6th of 1957. Uh, we'll take a quick break. We'll be back uh, with our commemoration of uh, International Women's History Month. We'll be back.
Lucy Gonzalez, born 1853 on a Texas plantation, grows up and finds love with Albert Parsons, moves to Chicago, hoping to escape the intolerance of their interracial marriage. Chicago at this time, growing immigrant population, exploited workers, revolution is in the wind. 1877, the National Railroad Strike erupts. Government militias take the lives of 100 striking workers. 1879, Lucy is with child, working as a dressmaker, financially supporting her husband, organizing housewives, 
writing for the radical press. Fighting spirit, working hand. Lucy labors for the revolution. The Chicago Tribune says, When a tramp asks you for bread, put arsenic on it and he will not trouble you anymore. Lucy responds, Let every dirty, lousy tramp arm himself with a revolver or knife and lay in wait on the steps of the palaces of the rich and stab or shoot their owners as they come out. Let us devastate the avenues where the wealthy live as Sheridan devastated the beautiful valley of the Shenandoah. On May 1st, 1886, workers across the country strike, demanding an eight-hour workday. Lucy and Albert lead a march of thousands. Days later, police kill striking workers in Chicago. Anarchists, communists, laborers come together in Haymarket Square. The air is still. Police come in droves, demanding the peaceful mass of workers disperse. A bomb flung from the crowd towards the police. Chaos erupts. The police shoot at workers and at themselves. The air is smoke, fury, and death. Afterwards, the state terrorizes anarchists and communists. Workers' homes are raided. Lucy is not spared. Albert is arrested along with seven others who have nothing to do with the bomb. The state convicts these eight men. Anarchy is on trial. Lucy tours the country, organizing a defense campaign for the Haymarket Eight. Lucy says, Had I been there, had I seen those murderous police approach, I would have flung the bomb myself. I do not stand here to gloat over the murder of those policemen, but when a ball from the revolver of a policeman kills, it is as much murder as when death results from a bomb. The state executes Albert. Lucy grieves. Lucy gets back to work. She continues writing. The police steal and destroy her pamphlets. But Lucy persists, resists, exists. She remains irrepressible. She is alive in the streets of Chicago, joining picket lines with striking workers, giving speeches, handing out incendiary leaflets. The police continue to harass her. She is unyielding. Lucy helps found the Industrial Workers of the World in 1905. At the inaugural convention, she is the only woman to give a speech, arguing that sex workers be allowed to organize with the IWW. She travels the country, speaking to workers. Eyesight failing, her heart continues the work. Lucy heads south, fighting to defend the Scottsboro Nine the unjustly accused Angelo Herndon. Nineteen forty one, Lucy gives her last speech at the same factory that catalyzed the Haymarket affair. Nineteen forty two, Lucy dies in a house fire. Eighty-nine years of relentless struggle. Eighty-nine years of believing in the power of the working class. Eighty-nine years of believing in herself. The Chicago Police Department called Lucy more dangerous than a thousand rioters. Lucy said of the police, 
We cannot help but believe that where every law, every court, and every police officer or soldier abolished tomorrow with one sweep, we would be better off than now. May we all hope to be more dangerous than a thousand rioters. Welcome back. And uh, that was a report, the audio report on Lucy Parsons. And uh, here's another report uh, talking about her legacy. The day will come when our silence will be more powerful than the voices you are throttling today. As the final words of condemned anarchist August Baez sparked a labor revolution, a dynamic leader emerged. In the late 19th century, Lucy Parsons, the embodiment of a disenfranchised America, challenged the racist, sexist, and capitalist society surrounding her. Her radical form of activism shaped class consciousness in Chicago and the world by exploring and enlightening America's working class to the ways of revolutionary politics. like common workers as they encountered labor struggle, explored their rights, and exchanged ideas for a better future. Few events in history have challenged the basic rights to assembly, free speech, press, and the right to a fair trial as directly as the 1886 Haymarket Affair. The 1886 Haymarket Affair was the result of years of struggling for proper working conditions. During the period leading up to the riot, workers encountered fierce opposition from business leaders and government authorities who limited their constitutional right to assemble and protest poor working conditions. So how did a band of rebels, including Lucy Parsons, affect such change in history? Come all you workers and hear what I say, they're trying to plunder the hate of a day, won by our forebears in the bloody campaign. So rise up and be in the struggle again. Most workers were working 10 to 12 hours per day, 6 to 7 days per week. Factories were filled with rats, disease, and dangerous machines. Child labor was common. The government had passed an 8-hour workday law, which it failed to enforce. Tension in America was building with individual workers having no power. The only hope these workers had was to team up and collectively fight for their rights a critical leader emerged named Lucy Parsons. Little is known about Lucy Parsons. She was a woman of color born in Texas and thought to be of Mexican, Native American, and African American descent. Her exact birth date is unknown. After leaving Texas, where her interracial marriage to Albert Parsons was not recognized, the Parsons landed in Illinois. She had two children. Her most recognized name was Lucy Gonzalez. Most believe she had been a slave and suggest this is why she fought so strongly for better labor rights. So how did Lucy, her husband, and her accomplices become such instrumental figures in history? 
Albert Parsons became involved in the railroad strike of 1877 by urging peaceful protests. In 1883, the Parsons helped begin the International Working People's Association, but it was their central role in the Haymarket Fair that solidified their place in history. The Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions declared May 1, 1886 to be the start of a nationwide labor movement demanding the eight-hour day. Albert and Lucy Parsons helped organize the largest rally in Chicago by marching with 80,000 workers up Michigan Avenue. On May 2nd, Albert left to set up rallies in Ohio while Lucy organized another peaceful rally of 35,000 people. On May 3rd, policemen shot at picketing workers at the McCormick Reaper factory plant, killing at least one man. In response, a protest meeting was planned for the evening of May 4th. 20,000 people were expected, but most plant speakers did not show, and only 2,500 people attended. Eventually, two last-minute substitute speakers stepped in. They were Albert Parsons, just returning from Ohio, and Samuel Fielden, arriving from a women's sewing meeting organized by Lucy Parsons. They climbed onto a wagon and addressed the small, peaceful crowd. Near the end of Samuel Fieldson's speech, with only about 200 people remaining, 176 policemen called for the meeting to disperse. At that moment, a homemade bomb was thrown into the ranks of the police, and the police shot wildly on the crowd, killing some of their own men. Seven or eight policemen died, and at least four meeting attendees. The next day, martial law was declared in Chicago and across the country. Police arrested a number of people. Initially, 31 people were indicted for the murder of policeman Matthias Deegan. Most were not even at the rally. Eight prominent members of the labor movement were chosen to stand trial. The eight anarchists were Albert Parsons, Samuel Fielden, August Spies, Louis Ling, Adolf Fischer, George Engel, Michael Schwab, and Oscar Nieb. An outraged Lucy traveled throughout the country on a campaign for the release of her husband. She made impassioned speeches about the injustices of the trial. Despite her efforts, the jury found them guilty and sentenced Nieb to 15 years in prison, while the rest of the men were sentenced to death by hanging. Fielden, Schwab, and Nieb wrote letters to the governor for clemency, and their sentences were reduced to life in prison. Albert Parsons instead wrote a letter to America for justice, and only accepting liberty or death. Engel, Fisher, Spies, and Parsons were hanged on November 11, 1887. The night before, Ling committed suicide in his cell by detonating a bomb in his mouth. Hundreds of thousands attended the funerals for the anarchists. Five years later, Governor Altgeld pardoned the remaining anarchists from further punishment. Lucy was determined to continue the fight. In 1905, she became a founding member of the Industrial Workers of the World and began editing The Liberator, where she used the paper to fight for women's rights. She supported a woman's right to divorce and remarry, to have access to birth control, and for equal pay. She was often arrested for her beliefs. She would later spearhead a movement calling attention to the unemployed, hungry, and homeless. The 1915 Poor People's March of 15,000 unemployed women led by Lucy resulted in the federal government instituting unemployment and hunger assistance programs. In 1927, Lucy was elected to be on the International Labor Defense, where she actively aided in high-profile trials fighting for the civil rights of the victims of racism.
she organized against the executions of Sacco and Vanzetti, immigrant labor activists wrongfully accused of double murder. After their execution, judicial reforms were put into place to review entire records in death penalty cases. She also defended Angelo Herndon, who faced 20 years in jail for trying to organize black and white workers in Georgia. After his release, the Supreme Court determined the insurrection law violated union organizers' right to free speech. The ILD and Lucy were also involved in the infamous Scottsboro Nine trial, the case against nine black boys falsely accused of raping two white women on train highlighted the injustice of an all-white jury as not a jury of your peers. All defendants were exonerated. Lucy Parsons was once described as more dangerous than a thousand rioters. Upon her death in a house fire in 1942, the FBI and the Red Squad quickly removed all evidence of her writings. Despite Lucy's prolific writing and long life of activism, her name is mysteriously absent from the history books. All that remains is a small gravestone in the shadows of the Haymarket Martyrs Monument. Regardless, there is no denying she affected change and continues to impact our world today. After the Haymarket Affair, workers started to believe that they could achieve better working conditions and better lives if they worked collectively. After years of protest, this spark of an event ignited the labor movement. The labor movement burst into flames and rapidly spread across the nation and the world. Employers encountered an emerging strength in their workers demanding better working conditions. But for Lucy Parsons, a woman of color, the labor movement arguably would not have seen the successes it did. Safer working conditions, an enforced eight-hour day with a minimum wage and time and a half were established. Child labor laws are strictly enforced for those under 16. Unions are protected under labor laws established since the Haymarket Affair. Constitutional freedom of assembly and speech were strengthened. Unions gained strength in numbers and power. Many of those unions remain strong and continue to fight for the rights and protection of their workers. Lucy Parsons and her activists explored the landscape of labor struggles, encountered adversity and oppression, and exchanged outdated ideas for real change. The legacy of the Haymarket Affair is, out of tragedy, a stronger, healthier workforce and nation emerged. What would your world be like without Lucy Parsons and the Haymarket Affair? Welcome back. And uh, that was a uh, broadcast, uh, two broadcast uh, segments on Lucy Parsons, the legendary uh, revolutionary uh, feminist. Uh, anti-capitalist organizer and activist. <clears throat> right now we want to move into another uh, luminary uh, in African American and women's history and that is uh, Mary Eliza Church Terrell. She was a well-known African American activist who championed racial equality and women's suffrage in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. An Oberlin College graduate, Terrell was part of the rising middle and upper class uh, among African Americans who used their positions to fight racial discrimination. She was the daughter of former slaves. Uh, she was born on September 23rd of 1863 in Memphis, Tennessee. Her father, Robert Reed Church, was a successful businessman who became one of the South's first African American uh, millionaires. Her mother, uh, Louisa 
Harris Church to own the hair salon. She had one brother, Terrell's parents, uh, of course, uh, instilled in her uh, the importance of education. Uh, she attended uh, Antioch College Laboratory School in Ohio and later Oberlin College, uh, where she earned uh, both bachelor's and master's degrees. Terrell spent two years teaching at Wilberforce College in Ohio before moving to Washington, D.C. in 1887 to teach at the M Street Colored High School. There she met and in 1891 married Herbert Terrell, also a teacher. The Terrells had one daughter and later adopted second daughter. We're going to listen to a uh, rare archival radio, theatrical broadcast radio drama from 1948 entitled uh, Profiles in Negro Freedom. Uh, This aired uh, during 1948 on a national level. Let's listen in to this radio dramatization of the lifetimes and contributions of Mary Church Terrell. Destination Freedom. Destination Freedom. Dramatizations of the great democratic traditions of the Negro people is brought to you by station WMAQ as a part of the pageant of history and of America's own Destination Freedom. Of an American woman, the late H.G. Wells once said, Turn the pages of this plucky woman's story of the broadening streak of violence and injustice through which she has lived her life in her own country, and I wonder what answer will America give to her. The woman was Mary Church Terrell, and in a chapter entitled The Long Road, Destination Freedom turns the pages of the Terrell story. Mary Church Terrell. The pages of my story began at the close of the Civil War. On the threshold of that new age, I was born. Born in Memphis, Tennessee. Unheralded, unwanted. It's a girl. At a time like this, the Almighty sends us a girl. It's neither the time nor the place to raise one. No, no, it's not the time for any child. I wanted none. A boy, he'd have a chance. But in this section of the South, where they're struggling to throw us back into slavery, a girl. Oh, I wanted no children at all. None at all. So, I was welcomed. And in the wreckage of the Reconstruction, I grew and quietly wondered at the split personality of the social system that spawned me, that preached one way of living for white folks and demanded a different way from black folks. And I asked my mother why I was unwelcome. Must you keep asking me that? I'd like to know. You'll get to see for yourself soon enough. You'll know. But how will I know? When you don't have to ask, you'll know. Now go on out to get your schooling. Your father and I have work to do. So I would go out to school and to play and to wander across the street where a boy I knew, Tom Moss, also wandered, and who had called to me. Oh, Mary. 
Hey, want a piece of apple? Go on, take it. Well, uh... Oh, go on, bite. You got a small mouth. Hey, hey, hey that's a nice bite. <laughs> hey, your mouth ain't as small as I thought it was. Well, I did the best I could. And your best is plenty good. Hey, you going my way? Come on. You walking down Cottonwood Street? You're not supposed to. <laughs> it's for white folks only. The sign says. Hey, but I hear your old man's going to buy a house on it. But my mother says we're not... She gonna... won't stop him, because he's right. I'm going to be like him one day. Ain't going to be no streets where I can't walk when I get bigger. Hey, Mary, you ever read the 13th and 14th Amendments? Yes. You know, our folks used to be slaves, but all that stuff's ended. It's dead. Ain't no more slavery, so them white signs don't mean a thing. The Constitution says everybody's free and equal, and I intend to stick by it like that. And Tom and I, children of newly freed slaves, would wonder the world around us. And already there was a militant man in his outlook that I longed to have. And when I asked him how he got that way, he said, oh, I'm a man. I'm supposed to fight for what's my own. Your boss is. And just what am I supposed to be doing? Well, you're a woman. You're supposed to just sort of keep out of the way. Your boss is. It was true. My father had said this. And one evening when I came home, he took me over to our new house on the corner of Forbidden Cottonwood Street. I stood with my mouth open. All right now, girl, stand aside. Least a woman can do is keep out of the way of those who are busy. Let the moving men by. Uh, Wagner! Uh, coming, church. Uh, we're coming. Well, this way. Stand aside, girl. You hear me? Uh, here, here, boy. Right. Uh, uh, hold it a while. Uh, easy now. Easy. Uh, ah, there. Don't see the sun uh, setting. Don't stop now. Get my furniture in. Well, I see the sun setting, church, but uh, you see what else I see? Way down the end of Cottonwood. I've got eyes. Yeah. It's a mob. Now, they've been collecting like buzzards since I heard you were moving on the street. I know that. Well, then you know that all they're waiting for is nightfall. Uh, my advice, Mr. Church, is take your wife and daughter away. I hired you to move me, Mr. Wagner. Well, that's what we're doing. When I need advice, I'll ask for it. Church, if you had someone here to help you fight off the mob if they attack you, it'd be different. Uh, all you got is two women. I'll tell my boys to take the furniture back. You, hey, boys. Yeah. yeah. Mr. Go Wagner, ahead. I've paid you. You go on. If you insist on it. I do. But, but you're a fool, John Church. A fool and his life soon parted. All right, boys. Uh, heave on that furniture. Now stand right. aside, girl. I stood aside as the movers piled furniture into our house on the Forbidden Street. That night, my father kept a restless watch. And outside, a mob intent on preserving white supremacy milled about and shouted. And through the night, as our vigil wore on, my father called. Mary. Yes? Not you, your mother. Mary. Uh, what is it? They're still waiting out there. Well, let them wait. They won't go away until they are driven away. Oh, but the police, the they police are... The police won't help us, you know it. If we stay cooped up, they'll swarm around until one gets enough nerve to shoot through the windows. Then they'll come in at us like like hungry dogs. Oh, John, why did we ever move here? Because our fathers long for this freedom, even more than we have. And by George, no one is going to drive us out. 
Well, well, what are we going to do? I'm going to meet them. Oh, John. It's better to go outside and convince them than wait and let them take us. My gun, Mary. Convince them of what? That slavery is over. My gun. Good. Now step aside, girl. I stepped aside. And though my mother snatched him, the ex-slave went out to convince his ex-masters that he indeed was free. And we huddled in the house and heard shots in the street, heard the uproar and the rioting, and listened as it died out. And when the overdue dawn drove the night off, there was a knock on the door. I went to see if Father had won his house or lost it. I'll go, girl. You stay here. All right, Mother. She tiptoed to the door and opened it. It was Father. He came walking in. No, three men, the movers, were helping him walk. They brought him past me, and then I saw the back of his head and cried out, Father, you're hurt! Mary? Uh, yes, John. Didn't I tell you to keep the girl out of sight? Oh, I did, but... Well, why do you stop and stare, too? Wagner, there. Uh, take me up. My... my head. Oh, John! No, no, not quiet, ma'am. He's hurt bad, but I think he'll pull through. He drove him off, all right. Just step aside and let us handle it. I think he'll pull through. And she stepped aside and took me with her and told me why she'd not been anxious for a child. Now you can see. Oh, for a short while around here, while the reconstruction was on, there was a growing freedom, and poor white men and Negroes were coming into their own. But before you were born, a reaction tore down the work of the reconstruction, the free voting the equal education. And I could see we were heading towards a new kind of slavery. No mother wants to see her child suffer prejudice and bigotry. Now, you see? I did see. And I looked closer at the life around me and tried to adjust myself for the task ahead. And finally, when Father had recovered, he said, you won't have to adjust. You're not to live in it. I've decided to send you somewhere else. Where? Somewhere where freedom and justice are more than ideas. Where men are working at it. I've made arrangements for your education. Though I don't know what you'll do with it. I wish you'd been a boy. You could be useful. Well, however, girl that you are, do the best you can. Now we've got work to do. Stand aside, girl. I stood aside quietly and prepared to go north to school. And Tom came by to say goodbye. <laughs> well, well, the little mouse girl's leaving Memphis. Huh? Oh, Tom. I just came over to help you pack your suitcases. Uh, brought you an apple, too. Want a bite? Well, that's nice of you, Tom. Oh, no, no, I, I'm not going to let you bite this time. I think I I'll cut it. <laughs> My folks say you're not going north. You're staying right here. I'll be here when you come back. Wouldn't it be easier for you up north? Mm, might be. It's rough here for anybody believing in the 13th and 14th Amendments. But I'm staying. But 
Why? Oh, I don't know. Maybe because my people are here. Maybe because my folks helped build this country, make it worth living in. Anyway, I'm sticking south, <laughs> even if I'm lynched for it. Hey, besides, I've opened up a grocery store up on Market Street. They tell you about that? I hear on Market Street they're driving out the Negro merchants. Well, I'm a Negro merchant, and I'm still there. And I'll be there, Mary, when you come back with your education. I'll be there. I left Tom and all the people I'd grown up with and went north to Oberlin College and studied the history of my country, grew up, got married, and then came home to settle down. I came home to a welcome that was different from that which was greeted by my birth. Welcome home. Welcome home, Mary. Yes, we've come together a little surprise party for you, Mary. Welcome home. My eyes were wet and my heart was full. Oh, now, Mary, don't look so serious. Welcome home. Why, you've been away from Memphis now ten years. (laughs) Not many Memphis girls come on from college with two, three degrees. (laughs) And Mary, look look at these gifts. Everybody you ever knew sent you something. Look. (laughs) Where's Tom Moss? Young Tom Moss? Oh, he's an up-and-coming market man now, you know. I'd like to see him. Well, it, it, it's time he got here. Uh, yes, he, he said that he wouldn't miss your homecoming. That's right. In fact, he sent you a gift, right along with the other folks. Here, here, I, I lift it in this here crate. Well, help me, Mr. Wagner. You bet, John, you bet. You helped me move my furniture into my house when you thought it was going to be my coffin. <laughs> you ought to be able to lift the little crate now. It's <laughs> yours, your John. Here you are. I'll just open it. Yeah, I'll see what's in it. Yeah. All right, all right. Yeah. Uh, nothing but red apples. <laughs> There's a note. There's a note. There's a note. What does it say? Wait. Don't let your big mouth eat them all. Save half for me. I'll be there. See <laughs> what to tell you. You're hungry. And... I felt the warmth of the people around me and forgot the years I'd lived in terror and when my father went out to convince his neighbors he was free. And I waited for Tom to come and to again strike his rich, warm note. Instead, his younger brother came running up the steps in panic and fear. What is it, boy? What is it? It's Tom! There's a riot over on Market Street! They wrecked Tom's store! The warmth I thought I felt in the southern air turned sick and humid and unfriendly, and the party turned into a wake. I recall wandering around the streets of Memphis in a state of shock and knocking on the doors of the churches and telling the story to the ministers who prayed over me and hearing some say, I'm afraid there's nothing the church can do about such a horrible thing. Is nothing we can do but pray. I am sorry. There's nothing we can do but pray. There's solace in prayer. The church for Negroes on the other part of town. However, you have my deepest sympathy. What do you expect my church to do? 
We can only pray. We can pray for their souls. Victor, I'm confused. I couldn't see why Memphis churches could not fight lawlessness could not feel it was time to crusade for the living equality of all mankind. I had read of lynchings before and had been deeply stirred. But when a woman has been closely associated with the victim from childhood, the anguish is indescribable. And I decided to make my home elsewhere. I'll always said if I had a son instead of a girl, he would be of help in bringing about the kind of justice the world needs. But a woman... And why not a woman? Most people would think, well, that fighting is sort of out of place for a woman. Then, Father, I... I think hereafter I'll devote my life to being out of place. To convincing most people that only when a woman stands with men and demands full rights for all, is she really in her place. And I went across the sea to study and learned of the progress women had made in France and Italy. I went to register at a German institution. I was welcomed by Herr Hansen. <laughs> uh, Fräulein Church, we are very glad to have you register to study here. Well, I've heard so much of this school. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> it, uh, first, uh, we were very worried about your uh, race. Yes? Why? <laughs> well, uh, You uh, discriminate against students because of their color? <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. The color is ridiculous. But, uh, to be frank, we thought uh, you might be, uh, Jewish. If I were? Well, uh, we would have to reject you, Fräulein. You see, we do not take Jewish women here. Now, of course, you being new here, you don't understand that. I do understand. There's nothing new about discrimination. Uh, but of course, you are... In my own country here, Hansen, there, too, are many institutions where I can't study because of my... But, of course, it's very foolish. Uh, in the institution would be proud to have such a scholar as you. Any institution should be ashamed to discriminate against any woman, Herr Hansen. I don't think I can study here. Well, why? I believe that once one accepts discrimination against another, he's preparing the way for his own slavery. I intend to remain free. I remained free in Europe, and I worked and studied while I saw other women slowly giving in to race prejudice. And I learned that no women can live free and equal by standing silently by while huge sections of the human race were slandered and made second-class citizens. And when I came home to America, I had my work cut out for me. I was called to Rochester by a woman who said, I've heard of your lectures in Germany, Miss Church. There's a need for the same things here. Yes? Yes. Women in this country have gathered under the National American Woman Suffrage Association. We're working for an amendment to the Constitution that will give women the right to vote. We need women like you to go across the country and speak 
inspire other women to follow you. Without this fight, it may take a hundred years before women will cast ballots in America. I've thought of that. Will you go? Where shall I start? Start where the message is needed most. Well, that's in the South. It's harder to get women to listen there. I know. We've got to get the white women and Negro women in the South. Get to them and somehow get them together. I'll get to them. I took up the fight for women's suffrage and traveled south and spoke days and nights before women gathered in homes and halls. I spoke of the simple desire every woman had for dignity and strength and the same human recognition for their merit and talent that greeted men, some men. And in the cornfields in Kansas, I talked to women while their men went off to vote at the polls. How long do you think it will take, Miss Church, to get an amendment passed? Well, if enough women from this state join the association and get their men to vote for the amendment first... Now, how do you get the men to vote for equality? Just the sound of the word makes them mad. You've got to convince them. How? My husband says women's place is to raise the children, nothing else. He has daughters? Three. Well, ask him if he wants them to serve in drudgery and subservience. And have no rights of their own. Well, nope. No, he ain't likely to stand for that. He thinks of his own daughters. Not likely. And I went south and talked to women in cotton fields as well as women in clubs and hotels. And soon my name became known in towns before I reached them. Sometimes the women welcomed me as I got off the train. Sometimes they came to the train to see that I didn't get off. As they did in Alabama. Are you that agitating woman they sent down here from up north? Uh, I'm from Memphis. And I came to speak about something that concerns us all. I knew it. That's her. Yes, sir. That's that woman who's going around stirring up trouble. Yeah, uh, women, please listen to me. I've got to talk to you. Listen, if you want to know something for your own good girl, get back on that train and stay, or they'll be throwing you back off. Yes, sir. Who are they? The men folks around here. And since when have women with backbone allowed men to dictate who they shall hear and who they shan't? Since when? We know what those colored women coming down here telling us what to vote for. That's But who knows more about what's in the hearts and minds of women of the South, Negro and white? You or the bigots among men? who've never given equal treatment to their Negro neighbors, nor to you, their wives and daughters. And who among you enjoys the freedom that all women need? Who associates with whom she likes? Who can bring up her children to be true fighters for freedom and humanity without telling them to hold back for their neighbors are Jews or Negroes? Yeah, yeah. We know all that you're talking about. You we expected you to talk that way. Yeah. Agitator. Yeah. Are you afraid to listen to an agitator? No, no, no. no, 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 no. Now, listen, listen. My man's a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And he's got some power in this town. And you I can better... see why you're afraid. He must be a very frightened and brutal man. Hey, no, 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 no
teach us hard on the color than the men. There's no man who practices brutality towards other men who will ever practice equality with women. to safeguard our persons and our homes. The only protecting women need is protection by equality under the law. Equality of opportunities and the right to share the benefits of this land alongside men. Equality to choose their associates without fear of intimidation from bigots and the hissing of cowards. That's why I'm staying in the South and getting Negro and white women together to find their freedom together. In the right to vote and the right to work will freedom be found. For once a white woman bows down before white masculinism, she is ready for slavery. And I spoke that way whenever I traveled. And slowly they began to listen. And there were women's clubs formed of women in the South to promote their own welfare. I helped form a national association of colored women when the crucial 19th Amendment to grant suffrage to women was passed. I worked for women's organizations everywhere to implement the amendment and to bring a new awareness of the struggles women were making to help construct a new society while race and sex discrimination would be outlawed. And when I had finished this mission, I was invited to another. Miss Church, I've called you here because we are proud of your work in women's suffrage and your work with the Washington Board of Education. There's another mission I wish you could join. What is it? Well, you've enlisted women behind political rights and social rights. World wars ended in Europe. Now there's another thing we've got to get women behind. Peace? Yes. Without peace, none of the rights we won for women will mean anything. Will you help? You know I will. I'm glad. I'm going with you. I'm going on leave of absence from Hull House here in Chicago to help build the peace. She was Jane Adams. And together with 30 other women, we went to Switzerland and there worked with women from every country in Europe to outline a program to put women who give most and gain least by wars squarely behind the crusade for peace. And on my way home, I stopped in England and met a man who'd already read the early pages of my life and said... My dear Miss Church, whenever you write your autobiography, call on me if you need a godfather for it. For if you live the next twenty years of your life the way you've lived the last twenty, it will be a book all America should read. And I came home to Washington, where I decided to live. And again I was called to undertake a mission. The call came from the head of the Washington Education Association. 
Would you have time this year, Miss Church, to make a study of George Washington's relation to the Negro people? My department wants to print a pamphlet for the coming Washington Bicentennial. If you have time, I know you're very busy. I found the time, and I began by boarding the bus in Washington to go out to the George Washington's home at Mount Vernon. But it seems I had forgot that here, in our nation's capital, I wasn't free. Fair, fair, please. Step back in the bus. Move back in the bus, please. Hey, hey, woman. Hey, you hear me, woman? You're deaf or something? If you're deaf, woman, you sure ain't blind. Can't you hear me? Oh, what is it, kid? You're just sitting in the wrong seat. White folks in the front, colored in the rear. You've been in Washington a long time? A very long time. Then act like it. Are you moving? Or are you giving me a little trouble? I'm too tired to move. I guess I'm going to give you trouble. All right, then, woman, you asked for it. All right, hold that door open there. Now, come along, come along. Out you go! Welcome back. And uh, that's all the time we have uh, for uh, today's program. Uh, that was the radio dramatization of the lifetimes and contributions of uh, Mary Church Terrell uh, from uh, the radio drama Destination uh, Freedom, uh, put together uh, by Richard Durham uh, between 1948 and 1950. We'll be closing out our program uh, with uh, the music of Shirley Scott, uh, Hip Soul. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.